Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to another episode. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today, our guest is Gerilyn Ritter. She is a recognized expert in healthcare policy and is currently executive vice president at Organon and Company, a global company dedicated to women's health. Gerilyn received her undergraduate degree from Duke University, her law degree from Stanford University, and her master's degree from John Hopkins. She is on the board of directors of several nonprofit organizations and chairs the Patient Family Advisory Committee at the hospital that saved her life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Gerilyn barely survived a deadly train derailment in 2015 that killed eight people. And as I say in the podcast, I remember seeing that on the news and how horrific it was. And she survived. She endured a long and agonizing recovery, requiring extensive pain management support and had to go through the difficult process of weaning off the strongest opioid medications on the market. And she published her book last year entitled Bone by Bone, A Memoir of Trauma and Healing, that she hopes will help other trauma survivors reclaim their lives. She is a frequent public speaker and author of multiple articles on trauma recovery, personal professional resilience, women's health, and other topics. So today, Gerilyn is going to share her story of really resilience and how she had to cope and how she had to use some of the strongest opioid medications on the market like fentanyl to survive. So she's going to share her story, her process from not being able to move to being able to reclaim her life and all the all the parts in between it really does speak to the human spirit and the importance of balancing our drive forward with acceptance so i hope you get a lot out of Gerilyn's story and if you're getting a lot out of the addicted mind 
please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help. Thank you for all the people who have done that. Just really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And check us out on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, Geraldine Ritter, who is author of Bone by Bone. And she's going to talk about her experience with some pretty intense trauma, both physically and mentally. And I'm just going to jump in and have you just start to share the story because I, I don't want to say anything before we start. I'm, I just want you to share it because it's pretty, it's a pretty amazing story. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here to speak with your listeners. My story, well, this part of my story, it starts on a really ordinary day. I'm an expert in healthcare public policy. I work for a large company. And I was taking a train down to Washington, D.C. from my home in the Northeast, just like I had done practically every week for years. And that was May 12th, 2015. I took the train down to D.C., uh, attended the meetings I needed to, got back on the train, and was headed north and just past Philadelphia when the train derailed. And it derailed going around a curve at 106 miles an hour. That curve was meant for a maximum of 50 Eight people tragically lost their lives that night, and hundreds were injured. The first car that I was riding in, in the pictures afterward taken at the scene, it doesn't even look like a rail car. The the rest of the train looks like train cars tipped over, but the first car just looks like a debris field or or maybe a, a tin can that somebody had, you know, pushed together and twisted. You can see the big wheels But other than that, it's just debris. And that's where many of the fatalities were. Unfortunately, it's also the car that I was riding in. And I was critically injured. I was not expected to live. According to the NTSB, the the government, the National Transportation Safety Board does investigations of, of major mass disasters like this. And they right. they actually rate injuries of, of the deceased and the survivors and kind of an odd thing. But, but, but technically, I was the most injured person by a lot who did not pass. But my family wow. was told that I likely would. I was a Jane Doe for about 12 hours. Nobody knew who I was, where I was. And when my family did finally find me the next morning in intensive care, just having come out of surgery, they were told that they needed to gather quickly, gather my parents, gather my siblings to say goodbye. Oh, my gosh. And, I, you know, when I got your book and everything, I I remember this on the news. I I remember the devastation of it. And and it took me a second to like put the pieces together again and go, wait a minute. And I remember just seeing that on the news and I, I, yeah, the devastation was intense. I, it was, wow. It was really crazy. It's just something you don't 
think about. Unfortunately, yeah. in, in the years since then, uh, a big derailment in Amtrak was just uh, in in India was was just in the news. It does happen, but we all ride trains, planes, automobiles yeah. every single day, and you never think it's going to happen to you. And and especially a train right. derailment in the U.S. seems so far fetched. I remember. I, I don't have memory of the crash, but I remember the moments right beforehand. And I had stood up wow. to get something out of the luggage rack above my head, and I was standing in the aisle. And I, I the train started rocking, and I remember grabbing onto the luggage rack to to, to keep my balance. And and I was kind of annoyed that. I, I couldn't let go to get what I wanted off the luggage rack. <laughs> and right. then I started to feel like we were tipping. And the thought that flashed through my mind was this is impossible. J- just as you said, trains don't tip. You go around a curve, yeah. you lean, you don't tip. And and when that lean started to feel like, you know, we were tipping over, I remember thinking, but we can't. It, it, it just, it, it, it can't be. And then you realize that, in fact, you were tipping over, and I screamed, and that's my last memory. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I've had people, experts, emergency workers tell me that, or, or hypothesize that perhaps because I was standing in the middle of the train, braced literally with my arms over my head, hanging onto the luggage rack, you know, maybe perhaps that was the reason I survived. I'll, we'll never know, of course, but I'm enormously grateful. Yeah, but that's the the start of this journey. It's I true. Mean, <laughs> it's the start. It's, true. it's just, you know, it's an overwhelming start. And, and then, you know, as I put the pictures I see in my head of remembering this on the news and going through it and the reports and everything, and then it's like that in of itself is overwhelming, but it's almost like the start of this new, this journey. It really is. Start to yeah. And that was something on. that I think you don't appreciate until you go through it. Trauma. Yeah. Trauma is not that one time event. And it took me quite a while to really grapple with and accept what a change this meant for my life. It, it, yeah. I was, as I mentioned, very severely injured couldn't breathe on my own for quite a while. I was immobilized in the hospital on a ventilator in traction. My neck, my neck was broken. My lower back was broken. My stomach had been found up beside my heart. My intestines were in my armpit. All of my internal organs were lacerated, ruptured, displaced. And then my, my rib cage, my, my surgeon described it as having been annihilated. Uh, I just, you know, the left side of my chest was just crushed and my pelvis was broken in half. The right side was not connected to the left side. In all of those injuries, the, the flail chest, the, the, what they call an open pelvic ring fracture, the ruptured diaphragm, the destroyed spleen, taken alone, all of those injuries have a pretty high mortality rate. But altogether, well, I, I, I had one trauma surgeon tell me, you know, you're a unicorn, right? <laughs> and you're I said, well, this was, this was much later as I was doing a presentation and standing on two feet. And he said, he just shook his head. 
but I was, I was under this impression. You're trying to be grateful. I did live. Nobody could explain why I didn't yeah. have a major brain injury and I wasn't paralyzed. I had one surgeon tell me, I have no medical explanation for how your body could have absorbed that much force to do what it did to your bones, to do what it did to your organs. And you don't have a massive brain injury. He said, I, I, I don't know how that is possible. You know, wow. but in my mind, I, we were just grateful. I was going to live. I, I, I would, yeah. you know, maybe ha- have, have some issues, but I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, I'll get off this ventilator in six weeks. The bones will heal and I'll be back, <laughs> which right. was crazy unrealistic. And what was that like? Like, I'm, I'm wondering the, the moment you kind of wake up and kind of realize you're here and you're in this hospital and, I'm just wondering what that was like. Like, it was so strange because, you know, they, I, I, I was immobilized with all the skeletal injuries and intractions. So, you know, you, you, you can't move. And because I was on the ventilator, I couldn't speak. Right. So I was very disoriented. I was confused. I was, I'd already had, that was about three days after I'd been in the hospital. I started to regain consciousness and I'd had several marathon surgeries at that point. And I remember seeing one of my brothers, which was very confusing because he lives on the other side of the country. So you don't know where you are. You don't know what's happened. Somebody who's not supposed to be there is there. And I couldn't speak. And and he whispered, he said, sis, there's been an accident. You can't talk. Blink once if you can hear me. And and I still, I, I kept trying to to say something. And, and he just kept saying, blink once if you can hear me. And finally, I blinked once and, and they knew I was in there. But all I can describe is, is just feeling wow. overwhelmingly confused. It, I, I couldn't make it make sense. And, and, and gradually, my family tried to, there's been an accident. You're in the hospital. Blink once if you, under, you know, all of that. It was Slowly incredibly slow, incredibly slow realization that this was real. This was not a dream. And I had no idea what was next. I had no control over what was next. That, that, that loss of agency, you know, you're, you're yeah. in there and you can't move. You can't talk, but you're hot or your foot itches or you're. <laughs> You know, it was wow. so I, I went from being confused to being really frustrated. <laughs> and I would imagine because you, you're also your life before you're a, an executive, you're working, you're doing all these amazing things, you're traveling, you're taking meetings, you're you've got three kids you're taking care of, you know, exactly. I mean, you're this person that's going and going. And then all of a sudden to come to this space where it's confusing, you can't you don't have agency. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, there was literally nothing. I, you know, I, I recall some very dark nights in the hospital when I was still on the ventilator, when I, you know, was in this position of literally feeling like there is nothing I can control. And it occurred to me the one thing I could do was close my eyes and pray. And I, I could do that. That was, that was the one thing I could do. And, and gradually over time, I was able to have some more movement in my arms and, and tap out notes to my family on a letter board or, or try to scribble something on a, on a whiteboard with the hand that wasn't broken. You know, but it, 
Yeah, it, it was like running full speed into a brick wall. Wow. And so here you are, and slowly this is starting to change. And I guess at that point, there start there starts to become this realization that this is there's a lot here. Right, right. And that that's what took me the longest. I was in ICU for quite a while, got discharged from the hospital in an ambulance, which I always thought was a little funny. I'm like, who leaves the hospital? <laughs> but I was, yeah, wait a you know, I'm like, wait a minute, this is progress. Right. Yeah, but I, uh, <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I came in by helicopter, maybe leaving by, <laughs> leaving by ambulance. That's an improvement. And maybe right? that's better. But um, I was being moved to an inpatient rehabilitation center for for longer term care, and you know, eventually then did graduate to to being able to go home. And it was a really slow process of dotting. You know, even when I went home, we were so happy. We were so grateful. This was great progress. But it's almost when that did hit me. You're back in a familiar environment, but nothing is the same. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I didn't go upstairs for two years. You're in a wheelchair, in neck brace. You know, there was, there was almost nothing I could do for myself. I couldn't get in and out of bed with all the injuries to my torso. I couldn't even twist to pick up a glass of water by my nightstand. You know, I would have to call somebody or tap a button, you know, for somebody to come and, and give me my pills or, you know, sit me up in the hospital bed and give me a drink of water, lay me back down. And that's when the depression and I think the PTSD really started kicking in. The, the yeah. psychological and the mental health aspects of trauma were something that I had completely dismissed, frankly. I didn't think they applied to me. I'm not a combat veteran. I was not a victim of domestic violence. I'm a rational person. This was an accident. Accidents happen. I, I was the lucky one. I had no right to be depressed, right? And yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You survived and like almost that survivor's yeah. guilt. Like you're here. These other people that were in that car with you didn't make it. They're not here to even struggle. Right. Right. And I'm sitting here crying because I'm in pain. Hey, it, at least I am here. I'm surrounded by my family. And that was, that was hard, you know, and I thought I was doing the right thing to push myself and be optimistic. I kept calling my boss saying, you know, six more weeks. I, I you know, just got to get off these crutches, got to get out of this wheelchair, one more procedure, you know, and I said, okay, by the end of the summer, he said, okay. You know, then it was okay by, I think October, I need another month or two. Then it was by the end of the year, I'll come back to work. And I right. subsequently found out my whole family knew that there was no way I was going back to work anytime soon, but, but nobody wanted to dash my spirits and right. even my medical team didn't want to say, you know, that's crazy. No way. Um, well, we'll see yeah. how it goes type of thing. Yeah. But by having those unrealistic expectations, you kind of set yourself up for a harder fall. You know, I felt like I was, I was failing recovery. You know, I, I just wasn't trying yeah. hard enough. I wasn't meeting those goals I'd set out for myself and I think it made the depression even worse. Right. And then 
going into the other part of it, of the, the pain management too, because obviously you needed really strong pain medication Absolutely. to survive this. Absolutely. But that also, you know, when we look at mental health and addiction and all that kind of stuff, that starts to intertwine. It does. And and one of my just absolutely fabulous orthopedic surgeon had said to me almost in passing at one of my early follow-ups, you know, you're going to have to go through weaning off of off of the the pain meds. And I was okay, fine, fine. I I wasn't focused on that. I had no idea really what that meant, but you know, when with my orthopedic injuries being so serious, I, you know, I couldn't breathe without the pain medication. You can't crush your, you know, (laughs) that's what he said. He described, he used that word annihilation because I was asking him how long it would hurt so bad. He said, Gerilyn, people talk about one broken rib hurting for weeks. He said, you know, you've got your whole left side of your rib cage not there. They, They plated my ribs. They rebuilt it with sort of metal bars piecing together all the little bits of ribs that were left. So I was on massive doses after I left the hospital, you know, so no more IV pain meds. I was on massive doses of fentanyl, oxycontin, oxycodone, as well as non-narcotics like Lyrica, Cymbalta, because of the nerve pain I was having from some damaged nerves. And that was a whole new world for me. I, I hear and I, you know, it breaks my heart when I read the tragic stories of the opioid crisis and overprescribing and the epidemic, you right, know, of, yeah. of deaths. My, my experience though is completely different. It's, it's not like mm-hmm. I was given a handful of drugs for a sprained ankle. It was hard to be on those drugs, you know, because they were, they are appropriately, but they are so regulated and I was so hurt. You know, I couldn't drive myself. I couldn't go to a pharmacy. I could barely had the energy to make a bunch of phone calls. And when you think of the practicalities, each of those drugs has a different dosing schedule, can't prescribe it at the time for more than 30 days. In some states now, it's no more than seven days. And you certainly can't oh prescribe goodness. it early before the patient has run out, right? They don't want you to have extra that you might sell. I'm thinking, trust me, I am not selling. I'm taking these things. <laughs> but, you know, so so every week or two, I've got to go get a new prescription or somebody has to go get it for me. Then, But you can only get it like one or two days before you run out. So you've got to get it. You've got to run it to the pharmacy. Then the insurance company wants 48 hours to pre-clear it to do a prior review and I'm thinking, okay, by now I'm going into withdrawal. And then the pharmacies put all these restrictions on and says, hey, we've only oh got, you know, a quota, so much of this we can prescribe per month. You'll have to come back at the beginning of next month. I don't and have you that. Can't survive. I don't have that time. And I would ask the pharmacist, what am I supposed to do? He'd say, well, maybe you can try the pharmacy across the street. I'm thinking, great. My, my records must have all these flags for drug seeking behavior, but. I was just trying to stay on the regime I was prescribed and that I literally couldn't breathe without. So it was tough. It was, it was very tough. The side effects were terribly unpleasant, but I, I needed that relief. I'm quite sure I would not have made it through those first few months without it. I, I don't use the word suicidal lightly, but I was enormously depressed and in enormous pain, even with 
all of the medication I was receiving. So it was a good six months before we decided I was ready to start weaning off off the strongest drug, off the fentanyl. And I did it under mm-hmm. medical supervision. We did it very slowly. But that was a whole nother leg of the journey. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So what about like, I, I'm just thinking, so you're in all this physical pain, right? Yep. These drugs are in a way keeping you alive. I Absolutely. Mean, is, you know, this is why they're also so important, even though there's there's this epidemic and, and crisis of abuse. They're still exactly. incredibly important for these kind of situations. Absolutely. And then I'm also thinking about all the physical therapy on the yep. the rehabilitation and the, like, I would imagine that's almost just 24-7. I, yep. I can't see how every activity is, a, every is, single one. is painful. Yep. Yeah, I was in physical therapy five days a week for quite some time. And obviously I needed it. I needed, you know, I needed to be able to do the therapy so that I could get stronger. So for all those reasons, the, the pain relief was extremely important, but it was tough. It was, it was very complicated. And, you know, just like I was resistant to understanding the severity of my injuries and how long it would take to recover, I was resistant to the idea that I needed these drugs. And every now and then I would say, you know what? I just want to know what I actually feel like. Like, what does my body actually feel like without all this stuff in me? And so I remember one time I just decided, I'm just not going to put on that next fentanyl patch. I'll see what happens. I'll see how long I can take it. And I ended up in a fetal position gasping for breath and, you know, took me days to, to re equilibrate, to, to regain my equilibrium. Yeah. And, you know, my doctor said, you cannot do it that way. You can't. I said, well, I wasn't trying to go off it. I just, you know, I, I didn't understand. And, and that was one of the triggers that made me say, I, I was getting so frustrated that my body wasn't healing faster, that the pain drugs weren't working like I thought they should you know, that I finally took a step back and my brain had cleared enough that I could, I could read. And I said, I've got to figure out what's going on. What is wrong with me? Why am I crying all the time? Why am I so angry? And, and I started to read about trauma. I tried to understand the nature of pain, understand how these drugs work. And that was empowering. You know, that was, that gave me back some sense of control. That was something I could do is to really better understand how overwhelming physical trauma can absolutely cause these biochemical changes in our brain. It wasn't me being weak. This is, this is what trauma does. And once I accepted that, I gave myself a little more space to say, okay, you know, there are, there are things I can do, but I also needed to get to a place of acceptance that this is just the way life was right now, and it was not going to change anytime soon. Right. And and it sounds like you made space for some compassion for your own struggle. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the, the other thing I did, and this is when I was going through the, the weaning process off the narcotics, off the opioids, you know, 
it felt like insult on injury, right? I still have a lot of pain. You decrease the pain meds, you feel more pain. But then on top of it, you've got some of the stereotypical symptoms of shaking and nausea and chills and dizziness and insomnia. And I thought, uh, you know, as if it wasn't enough. And, and that's when I opened my mind to sort of alternative therapies that I'd always dismissed. You know, things that have really good, I now know, scientific evidence supporting them. Right, yeah. Like yoga, like meditation, like breathing exercises. I was the kind of person that always made fun of all that. I'm embarrassed to say. I was like, you know. <laughs> right, right. You know, that's, yoga's for yeah. people that don't want to really sweat when they exercise. And <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> when I was going to, uh, I was pregnant with my first son and I refused to go to those breathing classes. I told my husband I'd been breathing for 30 years. I thought I was quite well accomplished at it. And I was not going to spend my <laughs> time like, going to breathing birthing stuff. breathing yeah. classes. So, you know, but, but when I'm in pain, it's been eight months since the accident. I'm weaning off the fentanyl. I'm sitting in my bathrobe, staring, you know, dazed at the wall. You say, okay, I've got to try something different. And those kinds of techniques did help me. You know, it's gradual. I still find it really boring, but it helps. You know, it helps. It's it's kind of doing a different kind of, of physical therapy and rehab. Yeah, that connection, that mind-body connection that sometimes we don't realize how powerful that that connection is and how that influences how we experience the world, experience our own pain. Exactly. You know, and, and stuff like that. By being able to change that, we can change that physical experience as well, which we is can. pretty profound. It is. It is. One question I, I was kind of thinking about, as you're coming off of these really powerful opioids, right, mm-hmm. how did that impact your your mood. Did you find that there was a desire to continue them? You know, some people who, you know, are addicted, it's, it's about getting out of that depression. It's about getting out of those feelings. And it sounds like it was different for you. It, It was, and I don't have a, I'll probably never really know why you can't be on the dosages I was on for the length of time I was on it and not become physically dependent. Your body becomes accustomed to them. Right. But different people have experiences with whether they are truly addicted in terms of having the cravings for the drugs. I, you know, I would feel when the fentanyl was starting to wear off, it was a three-day patch and day three felt very different than day one and day two. You know, I, I wasn't very in tune with, with my body, but I never felt that craving. I never felt the remotest high or euphoria on the drugs. I had none of that. And I never didn't want to get off of them. But I did have to, you know, after several false starts to try to just stop taking them or not really following the doctor's advice on how quickly I needed to wean off, you know, I had to reset and say, okay, I've got to do this the right way or or I'm not going to be successful. It's it's going to be too overwhelming. And it was way slower than I would have liked. And once again, I'm on the phone with my boss, you know, oops, sorry, going to be another month or two, you know. (laughs) And, you know, that was frustrating, but that's, it was part of that slow acceptance of, of, you know, I maintained the optimism that I was going to get better. I did not lose hope, but I also had to accept that it was not going to be on my schedule and it wasn't going to be anywhere near as quick as I wanted or had foolishly expected. 
And in the end, I was on total disability for my job for about two and a half years. Wow. You know, some of it was pain, some of it was stamina, some of it was I kept having to have new surgeries. So, you know, if you're having another major surgery every six months, that you know, keeps, keeps pushing things out. But from, from me telling my boss, I'll be back in six weeks to two and a half years. That was sort of a, a long journey of acceptance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, I mean, I guess that's, that's part of that process, right? We have to just let go and we are where we are. It's the, it's the, the, that radical acceptance. It's like, I am where I am and I'm working towards something different. Right. And there's things I can't control and I have to let go of that. I couldn't control the timing. I could work as hard. I never missed a day of physical therapy. I could work as hard as I could. I kept right on schedule, you know, kind of cutting back on the pain meds. I still didn't heal as quickly as I wanted. I healed way better than anybody ever thought I would, but it wasn't on my time, right. t- my timetable. <laughs> and I, yeah. I had to let go. Like, of, darn it. I had to let go. Of, yeah. Eventually I did call my boss and said, I have no idea when I'm coming back. <laughs> and I kind of oh threw God. up my hands and he said, you know, I mean, he kind of knew anyway. <laughs> and he said, look, right. the worst thing you can do is to rush and come back and not be ready. Take the time you need. And I'm, enormously grateful that my company gave me that time. Yeah. But then, you know, you focus on the things you can control. In a way, it was liberating because I started focusing on the things I could do and little things. I'd always worked and I had three young sons. I realized one day they came in from school. I'm still in bed. You know, I'm in my bathrobe. I haven't showered. It was three o'clock in the afternoon and something just clicked in me and said, no, if I do one thing, I'm going to be out of bed when they get home from school. And I'd never been there. You know, I'd always worked. I got home around dinner time. And so I thought, I'm actually here every single day on the main level of the house because I can't go up to my bedroom <laughs> right when they walk in from school. And I thought, okay, that I can do. I can be up on my walker. I can be in my wheelchair. Once I started walking, you know, I can be dressed and I can, you know, say hi to the kids when they come home from school. And then sometimes we'd all jump in my bed and we'd watch a movie in the afternoon. And I thought, you know, these are those tiny little silver linings. You know, yeah. when when in my career, never, have I sat in bed every afternoon and watched a movie with my sons? You know, so you you start to appreciate some of the some of the hidden gifts that that, that were buried in an otherwise pretty dark situation. You know, when I hear your story, I hear this balancing through all of this, this balancing of, I can see the drive in you, you know, you're, you, you, I can hear it to survive this. I think you have to be driven and that's an amazing part of you. And then I also see this other part that came out of this, which is that, you know, when you think about mindfulness and meditation is a letting go and those two pieces kind of fusing together for you or or finding a balanced space in your life through this trauma. Yeah, it it was. And, and getting that balance right is, is tricky. And, and it's kind of always an ongoing challenge. I'll never be as healthy as I was. I'll always be sort of medically vulnerable. It seems like some issue pops up every year that, you know, at this point, I feel like the diagnosis is you're just you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) something different and wacky all the time, (laughs) you know, but, 
I do work full time. I travel, you know, I've seen my kids' graduations. That's it's okay. That's you know, amazing. it's okay. And I I wrote my book kind of back to that theme of this is something yeah. I can do. And I donate everything that comes in from the book to the American Trauma Society or or other societies that help trauma survivors. I don't want to make a dime off of this, but if somebody else out there has their own train wreck, metaphorically, <laughs> you know, because we all go through something, right? A diagnosis, yep. a divorce, a, a child who's struggling. We all go through something. And if somebody can take one thing, you know, from it a, a, or a piece of hope or something that worked for me, then it helps me make peace with the accident, that it wasn't just this black hole in my life. You know, you've done right. something with the experience and and that helps yeah. me make peace with it as well. Yeah. And just for our listeners, the title of the book is Bone by Bone, A Memoir of Trauma and Healing. It's such a great book. And what made you decide, like, I want to, I, I understand, like, to be able to give that back, but right. to start to put this on paper and to write about it and to, yep. um, to put it out there into the world. It was um, a gradual decision. I started, I've never been a diarist or a journalist. You know, I've never kept a journal or anything like that, but I had all this time on my hands. <laughs> there were yeah. so many extraordinary things, extraordinarily kind things that, that people were doing for me or saying to me or, or funny ways we found to laugh that I didn't want to forget. And I, I, you know, I started writing things down and I was constantly going back to the doctor and they would ask me, you know, how much did this hurt or that hurt? And so I was, I was also sort of trying to track symptoms or things I needed to remember. I had 11 different specialists. I mean, gastro, urology, orthopedics, neurology, pulmonary, you know, vascular. I, I, I had a doctor for everything. <laughs> That's why they call it polytrauma, you know? So yeah. either just keeping notes of things my kids said or kindnesses I wanted to recognize or, or symptoms. So I started, I started writing. And at one point, one of my mentors at my job, just a man I consider an extraordinary leader, I was talking to him. I'd gone in just to visit, and he said, you know you have to write a book. And I said, uh, you know, I, I don't want to seem like I'm somehow glorifying the accident or taking credit for surviving. And he said, no, 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 you're looking at all wrong. The, you know, use this experience and, and do something with it. You can help other people. Yeah. And that's where it, I thought, okay, that was that was the reframing that I needed. And that was when I started in earnest saying, okay, well, and I just thought, you know, I'm not doing this to make money. I'll put it out there. And if nobody needs it, great. Nobody needs it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, you put the story out into yeah. the world and if it helps someone, fantastic. <laughs> so that was kind of the oh. attitude that I started with. <laughs> well, it's such a, a story of uh, resiliency. Thank you. Um, you know, like I think any of us, when we're in our darkest moments, you know, when we have someone else who can share us a story of hope. Yeah. You know, sometimes that's just what we need of to, to or to show us resilience. Yeah. Um, it's true. And I want well, that was another kind of thing that pushed me to write it. I started reading all of the memoirs I could find around trauma and there aren't 
that many. And, and some of them were very good. Others I found very superficial. You know, I was hurt and then I was so strong and now I'm great. <laughs> I, yeah. I, it's a lonely experience, you know, and I had lots of people that loved me, surrounding me, wanting to help, a great network of friends, but nobody can really understand. And yeah. I, I wanted to write the book that I was looking for that was kind of unvarnished, raw, you know, I, I love yeah. my husband. We've been married 25 years, but we were having the worst fights of our marriage, you know, as I was recovering and he was recovering from what he went through, trying to find me and ultimately identifying me and thinking I wasn't going to live and him going in mm. a flash to full-time caretaker. It was tough. It was tough on the marriage. It was tough on my relationship with my kids. I wanted to put all that out there because that was real. Yeah. Yeah, the reality of it, like yep. you can't, you have to look at those parts and all of those pieces. And yes, there's the the part of overcoming, but then there's the reality of it that puts that together and we got to see it all. Yeah. And you know, if you gloss over the tough parts, you're doing people a disservice. Yeah. And that was, Absolutely. you know, what I wanted to avoid, of course. Well, Gerilyn, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, before we end, I always like to ask every guest just one question. And okay. maybe someone out there is struggling. Maybe they're in trauma. And yeah. you could tell them one thing, one message. What would you want them to know? I would tell them to give themselves time. Give, you know, we are so impatient. We are so hard on ourselves. And time doesn't heal everything, right? <laughs> but give yourself the time, the space to try new things, to experiment, give your love time to heal, you know, with those around you, accepting that it healing takes time. And if you can do that, I think that's where the optimism lives. Oh, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Absolutely. I have a website. I have an author's website. It's my name, GerilynRitter.com. Very straightforward. G-E-R-A-L-Y-N-R-I-T-T-E-R.com. The book, you can order the book directly. Save on shipping costs and that sort of thing at BoneByBoneBook.com. It's also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the usual sites. I have a discussion guide I've posted on the website and I'm active on LinkedIn, Facebook, and other social media. So uh, please look me up. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, thank you so much. I'll put all the links at theaddictedmind.com as well so people can check it out there. Terrific. Thanks again for thank just coming you, on and sharing your story. It was an honor. It was a real honor. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can check those out there and get links to Gerilyn's book, Bone by Bone. It's a great story. And if you've enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.